I find it fascinating that we concluded the last time we were together going through the scriptures with Jesus's words, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's how Matthew 11 closes. And how following Jesus is not of itself a burden. It's, it's, it's led out of love and joy that we follow our Savior. And it's, it's so disheartening that in this very chapter, the Pharisees, the religious rulers at the time of Jesus, had taken a rule that was meant to give people rest, namely the Sabbath, and used it to even turn that into a burden for the people. This is what all legalists do who fundamentally misunderstand the law of God and what its purpose was from the beginning. That it's not about laws for the sake of laws, but for to put on display God's great mercy towards his people, which was completely lost in their culture at that time. Something that needed to be magnified for them again in the teachings of Christ. Now, it dawned on me as I was preparing my notes for, uh, for this service that to understand any of this text, we need to define a very important thing. What is the Sabbath? What is the Sabbath? And with that in mind, normally we'll go straight through these scriptures, uh, no- notably the second reading uh, through Matthew right now, going through each of these verses, explaining what they mean in their context, and demonstrating how they apply to our lives. That's typically what we do each Sunday. But as I was setting up my notes, I realized I, I, didn't, I never defined what the word Sabbath means. And I went back and redid all of my notes, and then suddenly I was looking at a whole sermon just defining what the word Sabbath means. So bear me out as we flesh this out a little bit. I didn't want to rush through the scriptures and make this a 40-minute message on a communion Sunday. So I'm going to take a slight detour to define this morning. What is the Sabbath? And much more importantly, what is it not? Because clearly that's what confused the, the Pharisees at the time. Fundamentally, once we define that, everything else in this chapter makes sense. But the answer to that question has its roots in Genesis chapter 2, where it says, On the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he had rested on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God had rested from all of his work that he had done in creation. So God had worked, creating the whole universe as we know it in six days. And on the seventh day, he rested. A principle that was handed down for us later to be codified into Jewish law. That, look, if God didn't work more than six days in a row before he rested, why should we? Why why work ourselves to death? Um. It was made so that people could have a day off and we wouldn't literally work ourselves to death. You guys know this crazy Northeast culture that we live in. Everybody's got like three, four, five jobs, it seems, in a household. And we can get political and talk about, you know, why is that? But the truth is, we're, this culture, we're working ourselves to death and to some degree. And even if your work isn't particularly stressful, there's still a 
a draining effect of just getting up and going to work every day. Waking up early at the same time. Eating the same breakfast every day. Taking the same commute into work every day. To do the same tasks that you do every day. Just to hit the same traffic coming home every day. All predictably. (laughs) For many, the traditional American work week has become the definition of monotony. And that of of itself takes a toll on our mental state. It's exhausting, all the monotony. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that work of itself is a bad thing. That, that's not what I want to say here this morning. And that could be a whole sermon unto itself, that work is a good thing. And hard work is commended throughout the scriptures. Just read the book of Proverbs, and you see it time and again in such a short book, how hard work is commended so often. But what I am up here saying is that it's not the only thing. There are other things in life that are just at least as important, as important as providing for our family is. Um, But we'll have to come back to that another time. So taking a break from the monotony of work is great for your physical and mental health. I remember when I I took some psychology classes in my undergrad, and even back then there were some studies coming out that were fascinating to me, that even just taking a different road on your way to work or or on the way from work, it fires off different neurons in your brain. It, it It stimulates your brain in ways that taking the same route every single day uh, doesn't. So even, even just slight alterations to the monotony are good for your mental health. And ju- just doing, just getting up and going into a different room to do the same thing sometimes can be so helpful. <laughs> Which, by the way, I find that fascinating again. No, once again, science is finally starting to catch up with the truth of God's word. But again, that's another sermon. Now, there is a big difference between not going to work and having a complete vacation from all stress. That's not what he's talking about here. That's not what's being defined here. Because sometimes, I mean, that's just not possible sometimes. Look, I got three kids. When I go on vacation, I take my little stressors with me. Everybody with small kids knows that. I mean, between especially when they're real little and you're changing diapers, and then when you're done changing diapers, you change more diapers, and then when and then after you have a couple of kids, now you're making food for a small army, and then you have to clean up after a small army marches through your kitchen, and then there's laundry, laundry, laundry. I've heard it be called the never-ending cycle. And goodness, it never ends in my house either, and I'm guessing it never does in yours. Oh, goodness. So when we talk about the Sabbath and having a day of rest, I'm not talking about a vacation from all of that, but a break from the monotony, a break to rest, a time set aside, sanctified, if you will, to enjoy God to enjoy the many blessings he has given us on this earth, to slow down for a little bit and appreciate the beautiful things that God has given to us. That's the blessing of the Sabbath. And frankly, from a historical perspective, that's why so many uh, used to consider Sunday to be the Christian Sabbath in this country. 
Because historically, that's what we've done on Sundays. We come to church and then we spend time with our family afterwards, which isn't a bad thing, by the way. That's kind of an ideal way to spend uh, a day off dedicated to rest. But, but not because Sunday's supposed to be the Christian Sabbath. Because there's a lot of problems with that when you think about it logically. First and foremost, Sabbath wasn't on Sunday. Sabbath historically was always on Saturday. Sabbath was always on Saturday. Again, mixed up my words for a second. But no, historically for the Jews, it was always on Saturday. Now don't worry, we're not changing our meeting times. (laughs) Because the reason why the church meets on Sunday was never because the Sabbath was on Sunday. The church gathers on Sunday because that's the day Jesus rose from the grave declaring victory over sin and its power over us. That's why we gather together to celebrate on Sundays. Not because it was the Sabbath, even though we repurposed parts of it. But secondly, very interestingly, the New Testament writers had many opportunities to affirm the Sabbath for Gentile Christians like ourselves. And fascinatingly enough, they never do. It's the only one out of the Ten Commandments Only one of them doesn't get reaffirmed in the New Testament, and it's the keeping of the Sabbath. Isn't that interesting? So, and we'll we'll flesh out the implications of that in a little bit. But to answer the question, do we have to observe this Sabbath day, this mandatory rest, as the Jews did for thousands of years? Not necessarily. But we get to. We get to enjoy the Sabbath. It was and always is for our benefit. We ought not lose track of why it was given in the first place. Sabbath was not, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It was given as a gift to mankind, not as an obligation we have to do. But it's made to help us enjoy a better life, to not work ourselves to death to normalize rest in our lives, to normalize having a sanctified time to enjoy God and this wonderful creation he's given us. That's why it's there. It's a principle that our culture, this modern hustle culture that we live in these days, as I said, everybody's got multiple jobs. This is a principle we need to rediscover here in the Northeast. But back then with its radically different economy, to violate the Sabbath when it was clearly the cultural norm in the first century, meant to work and to work anyway, meant you were working out of selfish greed. You were looking to squeeze one more workday in there to get a leg up on your neighbors. Shaking your fist at God in the process, saying I don't need him or I don't need to follow what he is, uh, what he's told us to do. But when you look at the passage that we read from, we're not going to dive into the text, but we read it together. Is that how the Pharisees were treating it? They weren't treating it like a gift to be given to us. They were treating it as something we needed, another thing we needed to serve, another set of rules we had to follow. They literally reversed the purpose of the Sabbath and turned it from a rest into a burden. Because, and furthermore, they made things worse. 
Here's, here's what I mean by that. They, not only did they have laws for the Sabbath, like, oh, don't walk a certain distance. You know, you don't want to, you want to be in a restful state on the Sabbath. But if the law was, you know, don't walk a mile on the Sabbath, they said, no, don't walk half a mile. And, and, the, and the idea was, oh, well, if we make the, the rule that you can't walk half a mile, you're not even going to come close to breaking the Sabbath, the actual mile. But that, that's a misunderstanding of how humanity works, how any of it works, how justice works. It, that doesn't make it harder for you to break the law. It makes it easier for you to become a lawbreaker. That makes it easier for you to be identified as a sinner under their definition. And what's worse is that they made those new laws of equal authority as God's word. They took their new traditions that they were stacking on top of these rules and saying, you need to follow these the same way you follow God's word. That is their fundamental problem in this. And sadly, it is and forever will be a problem that the church has to fight and strive against. Because my friends, this is exactly the same fundamental critical error that our neighbors at the Catholic Church and even the Orthodox Church to some degree have made, where they've taken the traditions of man and elevated them to the same authority as God's word. And every time that you do that, you end up basically with a mess. We need to, the church needs to, Relearn in every generation that the church does not have authority, the same authority as the scriptures, nor authority over the scriptures, but that we are subject to them. This is what the authority of the church comes from. We learn from this, not the other way around. We don't interpret this book and say, oh, this is what it means, you know. It's no, we read this, we see what it says, and we follow what it says. That's the main point of it all. However, today we're used to living in this plus generation, are we not? I mean, we got Disney Plus, Hulu Plus, ESPN Plus, all we all every single service out there has a plus, a additional subscription service to pay to get the good stuff. You see that everywhere in these days. So let me assure you guys, there is no such thing as the Bible plus. I certainly hope there's not an app named that. I feel really bad all of a sudden. But, but the truth is, there, there's no such thing as adding to it. Because once you add to the scriptures, what you have isn't a premium. What you have is a mess waiting to happen. And I'm not speaking, you know, arrogantly poking fun of others or other traditions. I mean, this is a simple fact of the ages. Luther, in his protests 500 years ago, noted how you have church councils contradicting the uh, certain church fathers. What do you do when that happens? You know, who has the final word? You know, when, when you have these differing levels of authority, now, it's been pointed out that what if the Pope, for instance, uh, in his authority as the Pope, met, named that there is a fourth person of the Trinity named Bob? You have to accept that as your tradition. Your, your authority subject said that. You end up with a mess. Fortunately, they're not at that level, but 
that it just points out the reason why the Bible ought to be the sole authority of the church that supersedes everything. And, and I don't just say this as a theoretical point. I mean, everything we have has to be interpreted from the scriptures. How we do church, how we do outreaches, the things that we prioritize as a church ought to be the things the Bible prioritizes. Um, even when you look at certain things like the creeds, we don't accept them as authority unto themselves. We accept them as what we believe to be a representation of what we believe the Bible clearly teaches. The reason why in a few minutes we'll all stand together and say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, is because I can show you chapter and verse where that comes from. I can back up each of those points in the scripture. Just because a people a few thousand years ago had some cool ideas doesn't make it binding. It's clear what our authority actually is. But coming back to this main point of keeping things in their context, I, I, one final thought before we close. In light of all this, how are we supposed to view the Sabbath today as Christians? Well, we've already discussed that it's a wise principle to live by, but it goes much further than that. Because to observe the Sabbath is to cease from your works. As we remember from Genesis 2, where God finished his works upon the completion of the universe. In Genesis 2, the work was finished. There was nothing left to do. Can anyone else recall a time when Jesus said something was finished? Exactly, the cross, where Jesus triumphantly declared from the cross, it is finished. There is nothing left to do, leaving no more work to be done for the Christian as the work has already been accomplished in Christ. That Jesus lived that holy and sinless life, something that none of us have ever done or ever will do, dying on the cross in our place so that all who believe in him, all who believe that he did that for us, can, can and will have everlasting life. And we cease from our work, ceasing from laboring to be accepted, ceasing to try to be good enough to enter into heaven. It's done for you. It's completed. It's not something we have to work for. So when you believe the gospel, you enter into a permanent Sabbath rest from your works, a permanent rest from laboring to be good enough for God because you already are. He's accepted you in. That's exactly what Jesus meant when he closed the last chapter saying, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you Rest. Rest from all of those things. Rest from the pressure and the uncertainty that we were talking about two weeks ago of how other religious systems never tell you how close you are to achieving the next realm or achieving salvation. You, there, there's no intergalactic scoreboard keeping track of how good you are. But in Christ, you have that assurance. Speaks all over the scriptures of how even now, the work within us is still being completed by Christ. 
That is why the word gospel literally means good news. Which, by the way, is exactly what this table is all about. It's fascinating to me that at the, in American tradition, the dinner table is considered the end of the day, the beginning of rest. The work is done. You've come home from your work day and you're now entering into rest at the home. You know, it's nothing left to do now but to enjoy a meal together, to spend time together with your family until we literally go to bed, the most literal part of the rest. But it's the beginning of rest and the work is over. That's what this table, communion, celebrates. The ceasing of rest. The, 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 the ceasing of work and the beginning of rest. How, except it's not that it's our work that's finished, but it's Christ's, which was finished for our benefit. Almost like how a child in a home benefits from the father or mother going out and working, getting the paycheck, and they're the beneficiary of that paycheck coming home. In the same way, as children of God, we benefit from Christ's completed work saving us and now we get to enjoy this meal together as the family of God each of us being brothers and sisters in Christ grateful for the rest that he has given us that we can enter into by his blood by what he has done for us so guys as we partake of this in a few minutes let's ponder this fact Ponder the fact that not only is this table looked to the cross, but in many ways there's a beautiful parallel with the Sabbath of entering into God's rest because of what he has done for us. It's something to think about. Thanks be to God.